Hello, my fellow Stoics, and welcome to the Stoic Sage Podcast. I am your host, Daniel Vargas. This podcast series utilizes knowledge and wisdom originating from ancient Athens, the birthplace of Stoicism created by Zeno himself, to empower those today with the goal of bringing about how to think rather than what to think. If you enjoy the show, please leave a five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts, and remember to keep in mind that a Stoic should always test their mental impressions. Wise people have an inward sense of what is beautiful, and the highest wisdom is to trust this intuition and be guided by it. Aristotle Hello, my fellow Stoics. Today, we welcome Shane Sorison to the show, creator of Renaissance Wisdom. On today's episode, we will be discussing his new book, Renaissance Wisdom. So, Shane, welcome back to the show. Hey, Daniel. Thanks so much for having me back on. It's, it's been a long time. I'm excited to, uh, to get into our talk today. Awesome. Yeah, so just uh, some general comments uh, uh, about your book before I start uh, grilling you with some questions. But uh, uh, the book is a number of different things. It's a historical telling that is often, in my opinion, seemed inspirational as it tells us how philosophy survived throughout the hardships of, of human history. But uh, Kate, can you really tell us what drove you to, to write this book, the desire to want to tell this story? Okay, yeah, there's, there's a couple motivating factors. Um, I'll say like on a very, you know, kind of like superficial, egotistical level, right? It's just something that I wanted to do. It's something that I've wanted to accomplish. I kind of had a personal desire to, to write a book, you know, to pass something on. Um, But, you know, beyond that, as I started doing more study and I started looking into the history, um, it, it became very clear that throughout the, throughout the middle ages, throughout the dark ages, after the fall of Rome, you, you really saw a stifling of individual thought, of creativity, of new knowledge acquisition. And that was something that really came back to life during the Renaissance. So not only was it a refocusing of sort of like personal power, personal sovereignty, but it was also a re-embracing of critical thought, of the search for wisdom. And you really saw, I guess, the quest of philosophy, right? That, that quest for knowledge and wisdom come back to life. And I, I look around at the world, and I know you see this immediately in the intro of the book, but I, I look around at the world and I feel like despite so many different problems and so many things you could nitpick and say that are wrong with the world, because there's, there's surely no shortage of things that we could point out that are not ideal in today's world, I, I think that maybe the greatest threat to humankind in general is, is a lack of appreciation for wisdom. And I guess that's, you know, when I say Renaissance wisdom, it's, you know, it's wisdom reborn, right? It's the idea that I want to create a thirst and a desire in individuals to start looking for wisdom that they can apply to their lives. And that's, that's really the, that's the big motivator here is I just, I want to encourage people to go out and search for wisdom. That is an amazing reason to really write this book. Honestly, I could really tell when I, when I'm reading the book, uh, you mentioned it a couple of times, you know, the, the rise of individualism throughout the Renaissance. And, and I think that that's an important factor, especially when you're, um, you know, hoping for what people will take from this book, that they apply wisdom that they and and what that really means is not obviously in in a collective sense but you yourself have to apply that wisdom so i think that's really powerful um in the intro you actually mentioned the that great rebirth begins through deep crisis and and go on to say that anything that is like humanly possible will occur sort of things as a sort of like a history rhymes uh kind of statement but is there anything as you mentioned just now, is there anything that's happening today that uh, that we would be critiquing as a rhyme of the past? Yeah, I I would say, and, and you hit the nail on the head when you mentioned like individualism and collectivism, right? And 
this is a thing that's kind of complicated to get through, I think, in a message. But you you look at like America and we're we're a very we're a very like me centric society. Right. Like we're America is kind of built on and like promotes and kind of like sells the idea that it's all about individualism. Right. It's all about like, oh, you know, live your truth, like be your best self. Like, you know, you can do anything like you hear these things all the time. But when you actually look at people's actions and when you look at like the collective society's kind of movement through space and time, when you look at people, they're not really doing things that are good for themselves, right? You see people and they're doing things that are good for like, they're good for advertisers, they're good for politicians, they're good for, you know, their, their jobs, like, but you see people and it's like, they're, they're drowning their, their sorrows in alcohol, they're you know, going out and buying clothes that, you know, they think are going to make them look a certain way. They're obsessed with looking a certain way that they're told they're supposed to look on Instagram with buying products to stay up to date and up to pace with society. And it's like, these are all these very empty things that yes, they're focused on yourself, but they're kind of focused on the wrong parts of yourself. And a lot of these motivations actually aren't even from you. They're from you being like programmed by advertisers and by society to think these things are important. So I think that actually the individual's voice has, has very much been silenced. And while religion is not really the dominant force anymore, like it was in the time of like the Middle Ages, right? The religion was kind of that oppressive voice that, that stifled the individual. I think that a lot of times now it's when you look at like the collectivist movement, it's, it's like po I think politics in a lot of ways and like the state and like the advertisers have almost become like the new religion, like the new God. It's like, you're, you're not supposed to question certain like political ideologies or narratives or free think, right? It's like, if you're a free thinker, suddenly you're going against the state or you're going against a political ideology. And it, it's like, it makes people kind of push you away or cancel you or, you know, call you a lefty or whatever it is, like, depending on which way you're viewing at it from. And I think that that's like, that's the real thing that I see repeating, right? Is it's like, it's that loss of the individual's voice. It's the loss of the individual's focus on self-betterment, the, the loss of the individual to be able to question narratives, to be able to try to reason and come to some sort of like personal truth. Uh, and I, I think that's the thing that I see a, a danger in society today. Nice. Yeah. And, and I do find it, you know, tricky, so to speak, because uh, we as humans, we, we're, we're social creatures and, and we do want, uh, you know, in our minds, we, we do want a sense of belonging. So we're kind of, I do see it where people are so hell bent on thinking a certain way to kind of fit within that social, what they believe to be a social norm to, to fill that social need. But then there's this battle that you're also trying to remember that while I am a part of this social thing, it's not my identity. I have, I, I'm an individual. And I think that that's also an interesting thing to kind of grapple with, you know, like how, how do we go about it as a, as a human species? And, and clearly, you know, when, when we're, when I was reading the book, it's clear that, you know, yeah, we, we have a lot of, we still have a lot of learning to do as, as far as learning the human condition. You know, I, I know that a lot of today's history of the ancient past, I mean, we only have like one to 2% actually documented. So it's hard to really grasp the full magnitude of what society was back then. So we can draw very specific or more specific examples of how um, we really dealt with that right and i think that's just something really interesting for us to to figure out as we go through a history of more documented uh of more documentation of our modern history maybe in the future we'll get a more understanding of how that actually works and we've learned so much but i think that's super interesting and uh, that that insight is also really important i mean how how do you think people of the ancient past like push through the fear of being alone in thought i as i mentioned the whole social aspect of it you, you know the rise of individualism um as you mentioned in the book like it, it's very scary to be alone at times 
when you're individually thinking and, and having free thought, especially in the world today where there is a, a bit of a rise of collectivism or a bit of a rise of um, uh, like social social issues where you have to think a specific narrative. How do you think people of the ancient past pushed back that fear of their collectivism that, that they had experienced? I, I think, I think a lot of it had to do, you know, especially in the Renaissance with like a lot of this reawakening that you saw in kind of like the individual spirit and the individual voice. It, it came from that reconnection to ancient wisdom. It, it really like during the middle ages, people didn't really study philosophy on the same level. The church kind of like forbid study of philosophy and they were kind of told and promoted the idea that like, if, if, that a pursuit of individual betterment, for example, right in life, like the, the desire to cultivate oneself was sinful, right? Like why, why would you need knowledge? Because everything you need is in the Bible and the Bible tells you that you just need to live your life, you know, this way, right? Like this world, this, this life that you're living is a distraction. And the real show starts when you die and you go to heaven or you go to hell, right? That's kind of like the general idea. And when you, do that, I mean, you, you rob life of its, of its potency, of its power, right? You rob the individual because like, why would you celebrate life? Why would you try to better yourself if you're just a sinful creature that's, you know, bound for hell if you try to learn more, then of course you're not going to want to learn more. You're, you're sort of like trapped by fear into this, this idea, right? And I feel like the way that they broke out of that in the Renaissance was because you had, you know, even like popes, right? They started to get like humanist educations and the, the humanist education, the classical education, right? They focused less on like the, the typical kind of uh, scholastic method, which was more so just like studying theology and studying like Aristotle's metaphysics and mathematics and things like that. And they started to, to study rhetoric, um, you know, people like uh, Cicero and Quintilian and Seneca they, they started to uh, study moral philosophy, again, like this, the same characters that I mentioned, and also Plato thrown in there, and also some of Aristotle's ethics. And so they started to kind of have a different way of viewing the world where they see these like wise men, and they're essentially giving people without religion that, that were before Christianity, they're giving them they're giving people tools to kind of like better their lives and improve themselves. And now all of a sudden, they start to have a different voice inside their head. It's not just this oppressive voice of the Pope or of the church, but there, there are all these ancient voices that kind of become integrated into one's thinking and into one's character. And I think that was like a real, I think that was the real catalyst for the Renaissance, right? It, it all started with like Patriarch. And um, even though Patriarch was a very deeply religious man and he, he wrestled throughout his life with the idea that, you know, self-cultivation was something that should be cherished. He really created that defense and he, he read these ancient authors and he was very inspired by them. And it, um, I, I think that's really the genesis, right? Was it was people looking back to the past, finding wisdom and that wisdom sparked a, a thirst for life, a thirst for knowledge and wisdom. Um, and that's, I think that's where it starts, right? It starts with a couple of people looking within themselves and realizing that maybe this life that we're living is not all that there is. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I think that the ancient wisdom of the past really advocates for the self, right? And, and like those tools that you're mentioning are very much um, tools that give you the confidence to be alone. Or, um, you know, I, I know that uh, morality, really questioning your own morality and realizing that, you know, you can be collective with people but you yourself are going to die alone and that's something you're going to have to grapple with and those tools kind of help you grapple with that and, and to realize you know what i'm i'm alone with my own thoughts i'm gonna live alone with my own thoughts and i'm gonna and i'm gonna die eventually with with all the thoughts that i have essentially thought so that that wisdom of the ancient past really gave people that self-advocacy to kind of break free and, and know that I, I'm going to be okay, regardless if I'm with the collective or by myself. Right. Yeah. 
I'll I'll add too, right? When you look at like ancient Greece, especially in ancient Rome, something that's really important is like we we had the city state, and you know you didn't have this like united Greece, right? You had all these individual city states, and each one was a little different culturally, and in their you know Athens is the one that we typically think of a lot, right? Because that's, that's where philosophy kind of had its genesis. I mean, that's, that's where we had Socrates and Plato and, um, you know, even like Zeno, the, the original Stoic, right? I mean, he, he found philosophy when he was shipwrecked in Athens, right? And what you had in the ancient world in, in Greece was you had a culture that put the state above everything else, right? In that sense, it was very collectivist because, nothing mattered more than the state, right? Like what, what good is it for you to build a business if your state is going to get conquered by some other warring country that just comes in and takes you over, right? So like the, this, a strong state was the stability that allowed the individual to flourish. And conversely, the state was only as strong as the individuals that made it up. So they promoted the idea that individual accomplishment and individual growth was something to be celebrated and something to be cherished, right? That's that's why we have these beautiful sculptures of the Greek gods and of, you know, these athletes, and that's why we have the Olympics and all of these things because they had a culture that celebrated individual achievement. Because better individuals, right, whether they're ath- athletes, which would turn into better soldiers, or if it's you know better teachers, which would you know make a, a more educated youth that would come up and would be the next generation of leadership, right? Those individuals that thrive and excel would go on to create a better society. And, you know, that's, that's something that I see sometimes endangered also in today's world is it's like people are so hateful of, uh, of success, right? I mean, like people are so jealous and I, I feel, I feel like we don't really celebrate success the same way that, you know, these ancient cultures did. Um, and I think that's something important to remember as well, right? Is that as, as one person survives and thrives and excels, it's, it kind of gives permission to everyone else to do the same. Yeah, definitely. And I think uh, the, on the other extreme of that, not, not only is it like hateful on, on that side, but also um, so self-sacrificing, you know, I think that's also um, a big part of it as, 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 like on the collective side of things where it's, it's like, it's okay to, you know, I'm not saying it's bad to, um, you know, to, to spread that glory, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. But I, I do see it often where battles that are, that have been won on the individual level, um, you know, you should, you should be proud of that glory of, of surmounting whatever advers- adversary or, or surmounting, um, you know, the difficulty of training for a big event or something. It's uh, always at the end. There, there also is this other extreme where, uh, no, it wasn't, it wasn't me. It wasn't me. It was, it was the help, the help of everybody else. And, you know, and that's very, that's very nice. But I think it, 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 that mentality I see spreads so much that you kind of teach people to, again, forget about, yourself forget about the individual your own you know glory that you should be very very proud of if you've gone through it even if you've had help like you've had help but you were an individual and you've surmounted that as well i think that that's also an interesting um side of the coin so to speak so what what part or person of the renaissance do you feel is most important to philosophy you know, I'd, I'd say it's it's kind of a toss up. Um, I th- I think that Leonardo Bruni, he had a very 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 important place um, through translations of Plato, through making a lot of philosophy more accessible, through teaching philosophy to some of the the great minds of the Renaissance, some of the leaders, and imparting the ideas of kind of wisdom into their lives. I think he he's has a huge 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 impact in in the spread of kind of like the western psyche um but also i i think that you know you can't really skip over patriarch either you know that he's the father of the renaissance he 
was sort of the first mind that started embracing these classical works, you know, the works of, you know, been, like I said, by Plato and Seneca and Quintilian and Cicero. And he, he looked at these people and he said, even though I'm a Christian and even though I believe that the path to salvation is through Jesus, I think that there is merit and value in these secular works. Like even though these men weren't Christians, like they give you a, a practical guideline that you can use to either become a more effective human being or a better human being. And I think that that idea that, you know, perhaps there are other pathways to self-betterment outside of, you know, the Bible at the time, that, that was a very powerful transformation of thought. And it, it gave permission to later thinkers like Leonardo Bruni or, you know, uh, Giovanni Pico to delve a little bit more deeply into philosophy and into that that dormant potential that's within humankind yeah definitely and and i really like how um uh that wisdom itself and how it was created was brought about by also ancient works it 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 really gives motivation in, in my opinion to really continuously build off of what was Right, because we're always changing, and I, I feel like something I've noticed in in modern philosophy is uh, people kind of debating or arguing, like what is the best philosophy? I don't know if you've noticed that, but I find that quite interesting to 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 kind of see debates of like, oh no, Epicurism or no, Stoicism is this and and that. Oh, religion is the way to go, and kind of thing. But I really like that that the father of the renaissance was really like you know what i have my own belief but there is important works based off of plato and now moving forward my work will incorporate two sides of that coin and it may be something different entirely it but or it may just be a a usage of two different things you know or, or me leaning on one side or the other i think that's a that's a really in my opinion, a, a very inspirational thing to really draw to, to remember that, you know what, most philosophies also drew inspiration from others. As we go through our journeys today, it's important to also build off of them because we live in a modern world now, you know, and our experience may be somewhat similar in, in, in many ways as, as, part as, the, as part of the human experience, but we are living in different times. You know what I mean? Yes, yes. And there, and there's like a quote by Aristotle, and it says, um, the, the mark of an educated mind is the ability to entertain a thought without accepting it, mm-hmm. right? Like that, that's so, I, I wish people would apply that today, right? Like there's the ability to say like, I have a belief set that, that's kind of my personal belief set, but I still think that there's wisdom or I think there's something I can gain from a belief set that maybe I don't completely agree with. Like that. that's... You know, that's the stoic like virtue of temperance, right? It's like the, the ability to kind of like temper your passions in a way that, okay, like I can hold a belief or hold, have a faith in something, but still be able to read something that I disagree with and, and learn from it and extract. I mean, I think that's just, that's a very powerful idea. Yeah. I, it makes me wonder like what kinds of philosophies are going to be born in today's society <laughs> you know it's a uh, i i have a feeling that we're going to see a lot of philosophies that are going to be integrating um what's an outlandish thing like um like the simulation theory or something like <laughs> sure. I, just, I just find that interesting I'm like okay well what what's going to come of this for from our experience drawing from ancient wisdom that i think that's a beautiful thing um but uh you dedicate a whole chapter uh to how the renaissance spirit survived and you described how it began with great men seeking to emulate and revive the wisdom of antiquity and then was squeezed with collectivism as we go through the world today i know you mentioned a couple of things but what what other advice should we hear from the past as to avoid something like that again Uh, yeah, I think it's just, I, I think it all boils down to 
again, just like individuals. I think that, and I, I talk about this in the book a little bit. I use like this analogy of, um, I, I use this analogy of like being on a plane and there's the little pamphlet that gets handed out and there's the, the picture of the mother and the child and the oxygen mask drops down and it, it basically has the mother like putting her own oxygen mask on before putting it on that of the child. Mm-hmm. And the, you know, the idea being that if something happens to the mother, right, she's trying to get the oxygen mask on the, the child and then the mother loses consciousness. Like the child most likely is not going to be able to save the mother. And now that mother has become a liability that other people have to try to save. Right. So like, by her putting someone else's needs in front of, instead of her own, she kind of creates a liability because she's not stable enough to, to look out for her own well-being. And I, I guess that maybe that's, that's the call to action of this book. Like the book, I would love for the book to create a larger movement, but it's not like, it's not supposed to be galvanizing in the sense of like creating a movement. It's, it's really supposed to awaken like individuality. And I think that that's, that's the thing that needs to happen in order for us to maintain individual sovereignty is like, we need more strong individuals that are in tune with the ways of wisdom that have bettered themselves, that can lead by example, that can question things and think independently and critically. And the the more freedom you have of those individuals and the more, the louder those individuals voices become, I think that that, that is what stops collectivism i don't i don't think you can stop collectivism with a collective movement mm-hmm. like it's it's kind of it's like counterintuitive right because it's like all right if, if you have you know for example right like look at like nazi germany and the the nazis you know a lot of people don't realize this like they it was the socialist party and it, it was a party of socialism that was basically like growing in support because of the wave of communism that was sweeping through europe so like the the collectivist movement of socialism was supposed to counteract this like collectivist movement of communism and it but they're all like collective movements and eventually at the end of a collective movement a lot of times you just have like one individual or a small group of individuals that takes control of the whole thing um and you know again that can be the church coming in and stifling discussion it can be um political groups coming in and saying like, we don't want to hear from this other opposing political side anymore. Um, it, it can be, it, it can happen on a lot of levels, but I think that's the, the, the medicine to counteract the effects of, of groupthink and of collectivist movements are stronger individuals. I think that's the way that we, we protect the individual. I love that. I really do. Especially with the, the analogy that you brought up where, you know, you, you have to make sure that you are taken care of first before you begin to help others. I mean, I know that nowadays there's these a lot of social movements that are, are very um, good intent. Some of them, a lot of them have good intentions, but when the person themselves is not taking care of their own individual thought, they are susceptible to being told what to think. Yes. And, and, and that becomes a very big, big problem because then, because then you are sacrificing yourself. And when you have sacrificed yourself, you have essentially become, in, you know, lack of a better term, a, a pawn for whatever collective movement is rising. Yes. You know? Yes. You, so you I, see it I, in a protest, right? Yeah. Like, you'll have a protest and the protest is very well meaning. Like it, there's a good reason for these people to be out there, right? Everyone's peaceful. One person throws a rock, one person throws a Molotov cocktail and all hell breaks loose. Right. Because now all of a sudden it's like a lot of these people, they're not, they're not like, they maybe are not like super logical or not thinking logically. And then like, they just, they see chaos and then everyone just turns into an animal at the same yeah. time. And it's like, <laughs> You know, that that's what happens when you when you have a whole bunch of people who are just on the same collective wavelength that aren't really thinking like freely. They're not thinking independently. They don't they're not really based on any kind of like morality where they're like, hey, it's it's wrong to kill someone or like it's wrong to do this. Then then it's kind of like anything goes in that moment. It just it becomes chaos. Exactly. I, I, I can have said it better myself that, that that's an excellent example, you know, 
everybody has to kind of remember that while you can be for or against a movement, you got to first and foremost take care of yourself. I mean, you you are the first line of defense before it's your um, camaraderie or the people that that happen to think for whatever movement that you have. But they also have a responsibility to their individual selves as well. I think that's I, I agree with that 100 percent. That's uh, definitely something that that we should really begin to strengthen again instead of continuing to feel or you know also find meaning in these outside collective uh ways of of thinking because a lot of it is is based in how it feels as opposed to is this what's right yes you know so i i agree with that so in your book you note that stoicism has its impact on the humanist <laughs> movement and what sort of impact do you see as part of because I, I i love stoicism and i'm, I'm obviously going to mention it on, on a stoic podcast but yeah. <laughs> but um what sort of impacts did you see it on, on the humanist movement okay so yeah i i talk about this you know obviously stoicism gets its entire own chapter right so i, I do think that stoicism had a you know, pretty substantial effect on the thinkers of the time. However, it, it was less so like, it, it wasn't people looking at stoicism as a movement per se. It was more so people being exposed to stoicism through several writers. So something that happened during the middle ages was we lost contact with a lot of ancient writings, right? Like in, you know, Florence, for example, which is where I center the book, there were not many people who spoke Greek so or read or wrote read or wrote also in Greek. So if there was a, a work that was available in Greek, not many people would have access to it. So it didn't have a very wide um, spread, right? So the things that made the biggest impact or the writings that made the biggest impact, that the, especially in the early years of the Renaissance, before people like Leonardo Bruni started translating and making things more accessible, was it was the Latin writers that had the largest impact, right? And, and those people were primarily um, Seneca. Seneca was a huge, 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 huge impact on the early Renaissance years and a huge part of classical education because he was an example of moral philosophy. He was a successful um, you know, Roman senator. He was very good at rhetoric. He wrote plays. So he, he was a very, very respected individual. People were reading a lot of Seneca um, in that humanist movement, especially in the early years. Another person that was read very widely was Cicero. Again, an excellent rhetorician. Um, he also talked a lot about moral philosophy. Cicero, again, he was active in politics, um, but he actually went to Athens to study philosophy also. Um, and so he was very influenced by the Stoic school. Um, then you had um, Quintilian, who was another one, um, he was a Roman orator. He had a huge impact. Now, I would say he's probably the least stoic of all of them, just but you know, he he was a Roman and stoicism was very, very much ingrained into that culture at that time. Stoicism was the dominant school of philosophy at that time in Rome. So um the way that stoicism I think really impacted was was through the words and through the works of primarily men like Seneca and Cicero. Um, Seneca obviously being a, a self-proclaimed Stoic, so he would have had the biggest effect. But you know, every single humanist and every single leader and every single person that was prominent in the Renaissance would have received an education where they were heavily, heavily, heavily exposed to works by Seneca because he gave an example of how to live one's life, how to be effective, um, and also he told people how to live, what, what wisdom was, what things we should, we should look after and what we should promote, right? And so when you have a society that is absorbing lessons from something as powerful as stoicism, it's going to have an impact on the society, right? And it's like, that's part of why you look at our culture and it just seems so empty today is it's like we're, we absorb like news that was created by CNN or like, 
by some person on Facebook or Instagram. And the whole purpose of everything is just to get clicks. It's like just to engage you. It's not, it has no substance. It's not telling you what to do or how to be better. It's just like trying to get a reaction out of you. Um, and I, that's, that's how I think stoicism really had, had such a profound impact, right? It was that these people absorbed these writings, they digested them. They were Seneca would have been so familiar to them, right? Imagine if everybody today, like every day, instead of waking up and spending an hour on Instagram, they, they woke up and they read Seneca. They woke up and they read Marcus Aurelius. They woke up and they read Epictetus or Zeno or um, quotes by Chrysippus. If we, if we did that collectively as a society, imagine how different our focus would be. And, and that's what was happening in the Renaissance, right? Was it, you, they were submerging themselves in these, in these people's works and it, it, it just, it's, it's destined to have an effect on society. It changes the way you think. Yeah, that is beautifully said, honestly. Like, uh, I, I really think that um, stoicism, and, well, on, on, and stoicism and its impacts on humanists, like, it's, it's so profound, right? And um, people would also learn a little bit more about stoicism if they read a little bit more about it. I, I can always tell when somebody kind of hasn't really read about stoicism but and, and like those who claim to you know and i'm not saying that, that they have to know specific things just like i don't expect myself to know specific things but um something i find really interesting is you know cicero actually he's the one that coined the 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 four virtues for example it wasn't even zeno zeno had a created the foundation of stoicism in a different way and then later on, Cicero actually built on it, creating the four virtues that actually built, that actually worked their way through the foundations of Zeno's writings. And I think that that is, is, is a very impactful thing. And like, because nowadays, people generally only see Stoicism through the lens of just the virtues and not really the foundations of what Zeno was, was really trying to emulate as part of stoicism and that is you know uh, understanding the realities of the world not just not just the virtues not just trying to gain wisdom not trying to just be temperate or 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 just or and, and, and act with courage um but seeing the world through its reality and how your reality works within within that particular reality, you know, and, and testing all of that against logic with ethics, uh, really trying to figure out uh, what, what are the best ways to go about life. And I really find that very, very impactful that, that the humanists really decided, you know what, this, these works need to be uh, kind of out there. And, and I think in the modern day, that would be nice again, if we had another humanist movement, because I agree, like waking up each morning and, and instead of, going straight to Instagram or, or social media in general, which has its, which we're finding has its own impact on, on your brain and how it sets up your day by waking up and, and, and reading those works instead, or at least having a mindset or a set of routines that follow what the ancient Stoics did or, or ancient philosophers, because they're all kind of in a way built off of one another in, in, in one way or another. An impactful part of the book that I really enjoyed was on morality and the dreaded existential crisis we all have experienced or are currently experiencing. Uh, through your experience with philosophy and applying the knowledge that most humans fear, that being of death, how did you or how are you dealing with your existential crisis? Yeah, I mean, if we are referring to it specifically in, in terms of death, right? Um, obviously, I, I dedicate, again, a, an entire uh, chapter in the book to the remembrance of death, right? And that, that's something that's very popular in the Stoicism movement today is this memento mori, that the idea that we should be in touch with our morality. We should remember that our time is limited. Um, for me, and I, it's funny, right, we're... we're having this conversation, I'm talking about memento mori. And um, 
I recently moved into a new condo um, a couple months ago, and I'm I'm staring at a giant uh, reproduction of the Memento Mori painting. I'm I'm sure you've seen it. It's the one that's got like the flower on the left, and then the skull, and then there's the hourglass on the right, symbolizing yeah. you know the the flower is life. You have death in the middle, and then you have time that's kind of slowly elapsing. And I'm I'm looking at this as I'm talking about it. So it's 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 something that's very poignant. It's a it's something that's very dear to my heart is this idea that like our time is so limited. And that that's the way that I deal with the idea of death is like not that it's something to fear, but it's like a reminder. It's like that that skull on my wall staring back at me is just it, it's a call to action. It, it's like you have no set amount of guaranteed time. I mean, I, I could walk outside after this podcast, hop in my car and die in a car accident. I don't know. Yeah. Or, or I could live, I could live another 60 years, but I, I have no idea. And remembering how precious life is, like how it, how unguaranteed it is, how ephemeral, how fleeting it, that's, that's so motivating to me is like the thought and the knowledge that I'm going to die reminds me every time I think about it, just how precious like every single second is. And that's, I guess that's my way of dealing with it is just remembering that like, I don't know what happens when I die. I have no idea. You know, maybe, maybe there's an afterlife. Maybe there's not, I, I don't really know. No one really knows if we're honest, mm -hmm. but I do know that I'm alive right now and I have this time and I'm going to make the most of it. And every person has a different idea of what it means to make the most of it. Doesn't some people can just be, you know, going, going and having a smile on your face and trying to be nice to a couple people every day and being a great husband or being a great wife or father or mother or child or whatever it is. Some people want to go out and start a huge revolution and change the world. Some people want to, you know, create a big business. Some people just, they want to go the route of like Epicurus and they just, they want to put themselves in a little garden and have a couple friends and, you know, enjoy life and just have a life of comfort, you know, whatever it is, whatever has that meaning for you, like just, just embrace it because this life, it's not guaranteed. It's really not. We, we have no idea how long it's going to last. So just make the most of every moment. I really like how you draw to even the small things, because I do see people taking that kind of memento mori as like a, uh, a grand action right and like it doesn't have to be you know it's it can literally just be you and in your garden you know and having a good time with some friends but remembering that your time is limited and to appreciate that moment what of what you're trying to get out of life even if it's just hanging out with friends but do it wholeheartedly you know do it with um Put your phone down, like exactly, and and exactly. live in the moment. Yeah, <laughs> I really like that. It, it doesn't have to be some, you know, uh, starting of a revolution. Which, if it is, you know, then remember that your time is limited. You know, go, and go ahead and and start that movement. But if it's not, you know, it, it doesn't have to be. It's it's up to you and, and whatever you want it to be. So I I, I really like that. As far as um, near the end of your book, it's it really focuses on this Greek term um, and I'm going to butcher it. So maybe help me out here, yeah, but eudaimonia, eudaimonia. Okay. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> which it, which is to mean something along the lines of the, the feeling of being closest to your highest self. And it's a sort of tranquility, not necessarily a happiness. Uh, and philosophers believe we should achieve this state not a fleeting emotion like happiness. Uh, among all the advice that philosophers have said to help reach that state, is, is there like a modern twist to the advice granted to us by the ancient philosophers from your perspective? You know, the, there are different philosophers that have used eudaimonia in, in slightly different ways. Um, my, my conception of it is as you said, right, it's, it's flourishing. It's kind of being in the continuous act of becoming your best self. The, the way that I like to think of eudaimonia is if you think of the word flourishing, like when I think of flourishing, I typically think of a plant that's like in 
and blooming. Like that's, that's where I feel like in English, we typically use the word flourish. Like you wouldn't most of the time use flourish for a human being, but you'd be like, Oh, look at those, like, look at those roses. They're flourishing. You know, like they're growing, they're thriving. They're like, they're really vibrant. They have all this color, like, but it's, it's a state, right? Like the, the, the act of flourishing or, or flourishing in general is it's, it's an act. It's a thing. It's a process of becoming as opposed to, I guess, like the end of everything. And I think that flourishing comes when you are in the act or in the process of becoming better. So it's like, you can wake up one day and get hit by a truck and break both your legs and you're really unhappy because that, that sucks, right? Like no one, no one wants to get hit by a truck and you break both your legs, but you can be in an unhappy state and you can be like dying as an individual. You're just sitting in the bed and you're thinking about like, my legs are broken. Like, how am I going to make money? And you, you can be in a really bad space. Like when you look at your life over a lifespan, you could be like, that's one of the darkest moments I ever had. I was like, walled up in a hospital with broken legs and I couldn't do anything. I was broke. Or you could be like, all right, I'm, I'm stuck in this hospital bed. Like I'm going to start digging through these books. I'm going to start reading the Stoics. I'm going to start reading, you know, works by Epicurus and ancient philosophers. And you could, you could look back on that same period and you could find it was one of the most meaningful and like productive and beautiful times of your life. Like you could really change your mindset and you could come out of that hospital bed with a completely different view of, of life in the world. Um, and that's like, you know, there's the story about Zeno being shipwrecked that I kind of mentioned earlier, right? Like you're, he's out there, he's got this, this ship, it smashes up against these rocks. He's shipwrecked in Athens. He's got nothing to do. He's like, what am I doing? I just lost my ship. And he finds himself in this little bookstore and or this little bookshop and picks up, um, picks up like Zeno's dialogue and reads about this crazy guy named Socrates. And he's like, wow, you know, like that's, that's amazing. Like I, I want to learn about this and it, it completely transformed his life. And then now he's looking back at this, the shipwreck that was awful, quote unquote awful. And it's, it was like one of the best moments of his life. He's like, this, this made me who I am. Um, and that's, I don't know that that's eudaimonia. Eudaimonia to me is like the, the idea that like, it's not about where we are in the journey. It's not about, being happy or sad. It's about extracting the most out of this moment about becoming a little better about like living life the most authentically that we can with what we have. Yeah. Whatever adversity, whatever difficulty you experience, we all have a chance to turn it to our favor. You know, even if it's just a simple um, mindset shift as far as, no, I'm, I'm going to make the most of this moment. Yeah, I think that's a very powerful way to, to, to go about it. And I, I think everybody can, you know, can grasp that and, and really try to, to apply that. I mean, I, um, I, I really like the analogy that you put where, you know, you can, you know, break your legs and, and still in the hospital bed really find a, a, a sort of creationary moment for yourself, a sort of a moment of okay when i'm i'm no longer able to build the body right now but my mind is still worthy of building and that can be a very pivotal moment in your in your life and who knows as soon as you step out of the um you know the hospital you'll uh, start your own philosophy podcast <laughs> yeah <laughs> so uh um what sort of takeaways do you hope for your reader to really grasp from your book? Yeah. I mean, breaking them down obviously by chapter, I mean, those are kind of like the key takeaways or, you know, by section, but I think like, I think one of the number one things that I really want to pass on, maybe the number one thing is like the idea of just curiosity, kind of humbling yourself and realizing that, maybe there's other ways of viewing the world. Maybe there's new things to learn that, that acknowledging that, Hey, there, there is wisdom out there that I can gain from all different types of things and just opening your mind and being open to that new inflow of, of learning. Um, I feel like we're so like, I feel like a lot of us are so closed off. 
Like we're in our own little worlds and I, I've created my own little world to an extent, but like I have kind of like a, I guess, I guess like a, a filter that I allow things in through, right? Like I'm, I've kind of walled myself off because I don't like what I see in a lot of ways, but at the same time, I'm always looking for some new way of viewing things. I'm always like trying to challenge my beliefs or learn something new or become a little better. And I, I guess that's, that's the big thing that I'd like to bring back in the book. And someone that reads the book, like my goal is that when you get done reading the book, you feel like a philosopher. And by that, I mean, you feel like a lover of wisdom, right? Like you, the, in the ancient Greek etymology of philosophy, right? Like the love of wisdom, you, you put the book down. And as soon as you put that book down, you're motivated to go out and pick up another book and another book and another book. And that's, that's what I hope to, to instill through, through my book. Honestly, it was a great read. And I'm really excited for this to, to hit the shelves and all of that. And, and I really thank you for being on the show. Okay, can you tell the listeners when and where they can buy your book? Yes. Um, so, you know, I, I ended up uh, going the self-publishing route. So my book is going to be available on Amazon. Um, right now, I mean, I'm, I'm not sure, you know, obviously when you're listening to this, but, uh, we're in pre-sale up through July 1st and it's only ebook is available on pre-sale. Amazon doesn't do hard copy and paperback, unfortunately. So, um, starting July 1st, you'll be able to get the book in ebook, uh, paperback or hard copy. Um, so you can just look it up on, uh, Amazon Renaissance wisdom, book and it should be pretty high up there in the list it's uh you know it's got a green cover it's actually got the church from the city of florence on the front um you can also find me on instagram uh, i have two pages i have one that is renaissance wisdom and the other one is going to be philosophy says i'm posting a lot about the book right now uh, you can also check out the website it's uh, renaissance-wisdom.com if you go there um, I've got some links to the Amazon store. Um, I've also got a spot where you can put your email in if you want to be notified that way. Um, so there's a lot of different ways you can find it. The easiest way, if you're really interested in the book, is just hop on Amazon, type in Renaissance Wisdom Book, and there you go. And then that, that's the easiest way to find it. Awesome. Well, I'm really excited for, for it to be going up on Amazon so everyone can get a copy of, of your book. And, and again, thank you so much, Shane. It was, it was a pleasure for having you on the show again. Yeah, no problem. Thanks, thanks so much for having me back on. And with that, my fellow Stoics, thank you so much for listening in. If you enjoyed the podcast, please leave a five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts. It really does help out the show. If you would like to check out some Stoic Sage merch or read the blog, please go to stoicsage.co. Also, give us a follow on Instagram and Facebook. I wish you well, fellow Stoics, on your path to sagehood.